0: I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. As Congress continues to debate new voting rights bills, and as the states pass new voting rights bills, We are convening on We the People today two of America's leading experts on voting rights to teach us about the political and constitutional questions that they raise. Rick Hassan is Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of California, Irvine. He also blogs at Election Law Blog and served as an election law analyst for CNN in 2020. His most recent book, which we've uh, been privileged to discuss on We the People is Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy. Rick, it is wonderful to have you back on the show. Great to be back with you. And Derek Muller is professor of law at Iowa College of Law, where his research focuses on election law, especially on the role of the states in the administration of federal elections. Professor Muller has taught at Penn State Law, Notre Dame Law School, and Pepperdine Caruso Law. Derek, Thank you so much for joining.
1: No, thanks for having me back.
0: Rick, please tell We the People listeners what is going on in the States. You've described two separate categories of voting rights bills, uh, those dealing with what you call uh, election subversion and uh, voter suppression. Uh, Tell us about those categories. Sure. Well, so I
2: think the first thing to say, uh, which will become obvious as, as Derek and I have this discussion today, is that American elections are... Very decentralized. So, unlike most other advanced democracies, where there is a national body that runs elections, uh, the United States has a history of uh, state and especially local election administration. So, when we run a presidential election, we're really running something like ten thousand simultaneous elections, uh, which makes things complicated. It means the rules are different. It means there is a division of authorities. There are some rules some federal rules that apply because the Constitution gives Congress the power to set rules for uh, congressional elections. So there are rules about registration, for example, that states and localities can't change. States have rules about how um, uh, ballots are going to be uh, distributed and counted. And some power is devolved to counties and those counties then actually administer the elections. Those are the ones who find the poll workers and uh, they're the people you turn your ballot into. And so uh, in the aftermath of the very um, disputed 2020 uh, election with Donald Trump uh, claiming falsely that uh, the election was marred by great irregularities and that there was a great problem with fraud, what we've seen is that there have been um, a host of uh, new uh, proposed laws that deal with voting. Uh, Some of these laws make it easier to vote. Some of these laws make it harder to vote. Uh, Hundreds of these laws have been proposed by Republican legislators uh, uh, who have been following the lead of uh, former President Trump and saying that the election was stolen or that there are at least concerns about how the election was run. And they've proposed laws uh, meant to either prevent fraud or promote voter confidence. We can have a discussion later on whether they actually do that. Um, But if you look at the laws overall, you can't really generalize. Um, So, for example, there's been a lot of discussion about the Georgia law. The Georgia law does a lot of things. Some of those things I think are good. uh, Some of those things I think are bad. Um, But as you mentioned, uh, within the category of bad, uh, I think we can subdivide that into two parts. One, kind of traditional uh, voter suppression, the idea of making it harder for people to register or to vote. It was a, uh, famously, and that's Georgia law, there's a provision that says you can't give water to voters online uh, who are waiting to vote unless you are at an election official and you are directing them to self-service water. Uh, which seems uh, like a kind of very strict rule for people who might be waiting in long lines. Maybe those people are in poorer areas. Maybe they're more likely to be Democrats. That's at least the story that Democrats tell about what's wrong with these laws. Um, but cutting back on the period of early voting, um, cutting back on the the time between the, the first round of the election and runoffs, so these are things that some people think are meant to make it harder uh, to vote. Uh, but the other kinds of provisions are those, and I think here... Um, I have a greater concern are provisions that will further politicize the process of counting ballots and of deciding how elections are run. So Brad Raffensberger, who's the Secretary of State of Georgia, a Republican who stood up to Trump, who would not manufacture 11,780 votes as Trump had asked for it in order to flip the election results in Georgia. Um, he's now been cut out in this bill from any role on the election board. He now has a non-voting role on the board, and he's going to be replaced by someone appointed by the Republican legislature. That legislature um, also gave this uh, this uh, new person in the board the ability to take over up to four county election boards for months at a time. And there's uh, thought that this might be used to try to say overtake the Fulton County election board, where a uh, heavily Democratic area where Atlanta is, uh, in. Order order to manipulate how votes are going to be counted and this really is uh, something I never thought we would worry about in the United States which is uh, making sure that we have rules in place so that the way that votes are counted is done in a transparent and fair way and so uh, most of these laws uh, that have been proposed have not passed. We're watching all of them. Some are more concerning than others. I think I'll probably stop there.
0: Thanks so much for that. Uh, Derek, what's your response? Rick uh, said that laws that are uh, supposedly designed to discourage voter fraud or prevent voter confidence can actually have the effect of either making it harder to vote or politicize the counting of ballots by manipulating the way votes are counted. Uh, Would you accept or reject that characterization? And and how would you describe uh, the laws designed to discourage voter fraud or uh, encourage voter confidence?
1: Sure, yeah. A, a lot of the proposed changes in laws, especially in places like Georgia. Iowa, Florida, things that have been enacted, have, have particularly targeted absentee ballots. And I think that was one of the, the strongest, uh, if you will, memes that was pushed around in the 2020 election. Um, President Trump and his supporters were very skeptical of absentee voting, uh, really strongly encouraged in-person voting. Uh, many Democrats were really strongly supportive of absentee voting. And this, you know, it had interesting dynamics in 2020. They, they sort of cross overlapped with notions of uh the severity of the pandemic or the, the risks that that are attendant with that or changes that courts were making to accommodate voters in a time of a pandemic Um, So it's not clear how many of these things have such salience going forward as these legislatures are addressing absentee ballot concerns. And then there's the empirical question at the back end that that rules that change the ability of voters to request an absentee ballot or how absentee ballots are verified before they're counted. You know, they're going to have some kind of impact. And we don't know if it's uh, something fairly marginal that really is perhaps affecting some of the more erroneous ballots that might have been cast or or the occasional rare outright instance of fraud, or how much it's going to have a broader effect on the population. So to take a couple of examples, we have in Georgia um, some rules that that push back the deadline by which you could request an absentee ballot. Instead sort of four days before the election, you now have to request it eleven days before the election. Um, it was one of the more popular elements of the Georgia bill by public polling concerns, but undoubtedly uh, it had a partisan divide. As far more Republicans supported it than Democrats. Uh, And the, the argument on the one side for the Georgia legislature is, look, we want people to request a ballot not just four days before the election where the likelihood of their ability to cast the ballot is limited. We need to set that deadline a little bit earlier. And if you can't put in that absentee ballot request early, then show up in person to vote. Or another one in Georgia was that signature verification, it's kind of a sloppy, outmoded method of verifying a voter's identity. And so the thought was, especially given some of the sloppiness or the concerns about it, the appearance of it in 2020, let's instead require voters to put their driver's license number, some other sort of state uh, form of identification to identify who they are, and we'll use that as a verification method. Again, sort of a partisan divide about the appropriateness of that. Georgia has a voter identification law already in place. And so this might run along with it. Uh, And so then the question is, you know, how much of an impact is that gonna have? How many voters are gonna be unable to cure their ballot by by identifying themselves up front? And if not, then drive them to in-person voting. And so there's a theme here that that voters still have that opportunity to participate to show up on election day. It simply tightens up some of the rules for absentee voting. I think it's, again, it's an open question. What, What are the kinds of voters that are using that absentee voting? Historically, we might have thought it was the elderly and military voters, and there's a reason why Republicans strongly supported extending absentee rules to those demographics in the 1980s and 90s. Um, And now there's a perception, especially given the pandemic in 2020, that Democrats were far more likely to use absentee voting than Republicans, although some of the empirical literature, I think, suggests that that's not even necessarily the case as it it played out in terms of overall turnout in the 2020 election. Um, So on the one hand, you can say these rules, they certainly tighten up some aspects of the absentee balloting system that could have an impact on voters. At the same time, you can say, well, if if the the sort of normative goal is we want people to sort of have sort of as much information as possible to have a reliable, secure, easy to apply balloting system in the absentee process, and if not to show up on election day, Uh, driving voters to Election Day, if that's the case, then I think it remains an open question about whether or not that goal will be achieved.
0: Thanks so much for that. Mm -hmm. Rick, when it comes to absentee ballots, uh, Derek said that there's a case that uh, some of them might, in fact, increase voter confidence and discourage fraud. Do you think that there is a case to be made for any of these absentee ballot provisions and then address more broadly The question of what, if any, aspects of these bills that are pending could be seen as legitimate attempts to increase voter confidence and decrease voter fraud.
2: I do think that um, I agree with much of what uh, Derek said about um, the uncertainty of knowing how these laws are going to affect turnout. Uh, I think that that shouldn't even be the primary question. The primary question should be, why is the state making it harder for people to register or, or to vote? Is there a good reason? And that gets us into the questions about voter fraud and about uh, promoting voter confidence. And it turns out that many of these laws, and again, we, we can't, every law is different. I can't, I'm not speaking to every single provision of, of all of these laws. Uh, generally speaking, uh, many of these laws neither um, prevent appreciable amounts of fraud nor Um, promote voter confidence. In in terms of fraud, we do know that absentee ballot fraud is more prevalent than in-person voting fraud. That's been known for a long time. We've often made the trade-off and said, we'll tolerate the risk of a little bit more fraud and we'll look for it in order to give voters convenience. During the last election, the calculation was different because we were voting during a pandemic, so the the costs of voting in person were much higher in terms of people exposing themselves potentially to uh, a deadly virus. And so uh, we decided that that trade-off was worthwhile. People watched this election extremely closely, and what we found is very little evidence of absentee ballot fraud. There was just a case uh, that came out a few days ago about a a man who murders his wife and then casts an absentee ballot for Donald Trump uh, after he killed her. Um, There are these celebrated cases, but they're actually quite rare. And we've seen no evidence anywhere in the country of any kind of absentee ballot fraud process to try to steal an election this time around. People have been looking for it. On voter confidence, there's a bit of what I consider some unscrupulous bootstrapping here. Uh, Donald Trump led Republicans in claiming that um, the election was stolen, that ballots were going to come in from China. We now have this crazy audit going on in Arizona where a group called Cyber Ninjas, this private organization, is looking at ballots for traces of bamboo that would supposedly show that ballots were imported from from China um, or from South Korea. I mean, just some crazy stuff going on. And uh, this undermines Republican confidence in, Republican voter confidence in the fairness uh, and, and integrity of the election process. If you look at polling, it shows that many Republican voters believe what Donald Trump and others have said, which is that uh, that the election was stolen. And therefore, that's used as an excuse to pass new laws that make it harder to register and vote in the name of promoting voter confidence. And we do know that studies of Um, states, for example, that have stricter voter ID laws, they don't tend to have voters that are more confident in the process. Voter confidence is driven by other factors. It's not actually driven by election laws. And so I don't think that these laws generally are doing much for voter confidence. They are probably doing much for the Republican legislators who are afraid of Donald Trump or are trying to please their base. And they're looking for something they can do that will convince those voters that... um, There are steps being taken so that another election won't be stolen, even though this one wasn't stolen either.
0: Uh, Derek, um, Rick just said that the pending laws don't prevent fraud or promote voter confidence. Uh, Can you make the strongest case possible for the ways in which these laws do, in fact, uh, prevent fraud or promote uh, confidence?
1: Yeah, at least one thing in terms of confidence that i've been looking at uh, you know and to, to, to one of the points rick's raised earlier is the uncertainty about you know having state officials especially politicians having a greater role in overseeing the election process there's a related but i think better concern to think about which is when we talk about that decentralization how counties have done so much activity I think there was a lot of frustration, uh, you know, maybe it was especially in Republican officials' parts or Republicans who, were the, who, who lost the presidential election, to point out sort of the variance that was happening on a county-by-county basis. And we can attribute some of that to the pandemic, where county officials were doing different kinds of things. Uh, we can attribute it to maybe the fact that county officials as Democrats or Republicans viewed certain accommodations as more important or less important. But I think undoubtedly there were things and decisions that were being made at the local level. Um, that led to some inequalities in what was happening in terms of the statewide overall results. And so while I, I certainly agree with Rick's point that there's no sort of evidence of systematic fraud, I think there's no question that, um, you know, at least some of the appearance, uh, and again, comes more on the losing side than the winning side, right? The appearance of sort of inconsistencies in election administration was was a problem in my judgment in 2020. And so some of the rules in places like uh, Iowa or Georgia or Florida that are providing some greater uniformity about how ballot boxes, uh, drop box locations uh, are placed or about the timing in which that ballots can be mailed out or whatever it might be. To the extent that the legislature is picking some ex-ante rules that it wants to provide that are going to give voters in whatever part of the state you live in a more similarly situated experience, I think that's a good thing. And I think those are the kinds of rules that we need sort of regardless of, you know, the the, the underlying motivation of them. If, if they're built on a lie, I think that's a, that's a very frustrating and disappointing thing. Uh, rather than being built on the the argument that we want to treat similarly situated voters more similarly, right? Um, and understandably, there are people who are sort of frustrated looking at some of these rules, rules that say one ballot box drop location per county. Um, you know, in a way, maybe that treats all voters equally, but if you're in a county that has 20 times the population of another, maybe it's not quite so equal. Or if your county is physically much larger and larger and spread out, then maybe we need to be thinking about providing sort of, again, those better rules to provide the uniformity of the experience for voters and thinking more strategically about it. Um, but I do think there is a case to be made for the legislature, at least, up front, providing some of these rules that uh, are going to be fixed. We're not going to have local ele- election officials changing the rules close in time to the election. Uh, and, and to that extent, at least, I, I think there there are some, some positive things to be looking at in these bills.
0: Rick, you wrote a piece for the New York Times uh, recently, which identified a threat uh, that you're especially concerned about, which you called election subversion. Uh, tell us about how that applies uh, both in Georgia and in other bills that are uh, pending before the states?
2: So the concern, and I think is a concern that Derek and I share, uh, is that we have fair rules up front for how votes are going to be counted, and that we have um, transparency in the process and accountability so that uh, we don't have uh, people messing with uh, election uh, outcomes. And so what I'm concerned about are, for example, uh, we can leave um, Georgia and talk about Iowa or talk about what's pending in Texas, uh, laws that would criminalize the process of election officials sending out applications for absentee ballots to uh, voters um, so that they could apply for to vote by mail if they want to, or laws that will give poll watchers who could be partisans who are, uh, you know, coming to um, mess with a a fair election process, giving poll workers, uh, excuse me, poll watchers unlimited access to what's going on at a a polling place. This could interfere with the fair administration of elections. Um, These kinds of things that would uh, either uh, make it uh, harder for election administrators to do their jobs or actually give those jobs over to people who can't be trusted to count the votes, That that's really troubling to me. If you go back and you look at the 2020 election and you ask, how is it that we survived this unprecedented period where you had a presidential candidate who was uh, in, incessantly claiming that the election was rigged and stolen against him and pressuring election officials to change election results, what kept... Uh, this country from devolving into a situation where the election itself uh, was the, the results were going to be indeterminate was that that election officials held the line and this was both democratic and republican election officials i already mentioned brad raffensperger the secretary of state of georgia a republican who refused to find additional votes to flip the results for uh um uh to donald trump from joe biden from georgia but there were many others there was um a Republican on the state uh, canvassing board in Michigan who refused pressure to overturn the results there. Uh, There were judges, uh, Trump appointed judges included among them, who refused to mangle existing uh, jurisprudence to try to find a way to uh, award Trump a a revote or give the power over to state legislatures after state legislatures give the power to voters to choose presidential electors. All of those lines held, but what I worry about is in 2024 that the people who stood up for the rule of law are going to be pushed out. Already we've seen people like Raffensperger being um, uh, censured by uh, election officials. He's being challenged in his re-election by a a, a current member of Congress who has uh, parroted Trump's false statements that the election was stolen or rigged. And so I worry that the next time around, aided by new laws that are being passed by state legislatures uh, in some Republican states, it's going to be easier to actually manipulate the outcome of of, uh, elections and not fairly count the ballots. That's why we need things like rules that require that everyone vote on paper ballots so that there'll be something that can be examined by a fair counter or court. Uh, to make sure that election results are not being manipulated.
0: Uh, Derek, so Rick has identified at least three laws that he say threaten election subversion, uh, including the Iowa law that threatens criminal penalties against local election officials, uh, the Texas bill that would give challengers the ability to interfere with polling place procedures, and the parts of the Georgia law that give the legislature the power to handpick election officials. Uh, do you agree or disagree that these could lead to election subversion? Yeah, uh, you know, qualified
1: agree. And I'll I'll give the difference uh, maybe at the end of my answer here. You know, at the opening, I I work as a poll worker, not a watcher. And I love being a poll worker. And there's no question that as worker... Um, I, can f- I feel mostly frustrated when I see the poll watchers because I feel like the sense being if you want to see the system improved, volunteer, invest your time and be a part of the process. Um, and I think, you know, wh- when I, whenever I've worked in, in a number of states and counties as an election worker, um, you know, everyone is diligently trying to do their job getting paid. Uh, essentially peanuts to try to help the system run smoothly. So I think anything that tries to interfere with sort of those those folks' responsibility is a real problem. And so I, on that, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, and, you know, I, I can pick the Iowa law in particular to think about, you know, on the one hand, you know, the law has an open-ended provision that says technical infractions uh, by a county official can result in a fine of up to $10,000. And that, in my judgment, is an extraordinarily sloppily drafted law. It doesn't Provides you the context for what technical violations looks like, Uh, you know, it's sort of an open ended question Uh, at the same time, you know, the 2020 election in particular was a frustration in the state of Iowa for a handful of of county election officials who just disregarded what state officers said, where uh, they, they were pre filling out forms on absentee ballot requests and mailing them out to voters uh, and there had to be repeated litigation going up to the Iowa Supreme Court to instruct those county auditors not to do it, that the existing law didn't authorize them to do it, and that they were acting beyond the authority granted to them by the statute. Um, and so the laws that are trying to constrain some of the flagrant behavior of counties, you know, flagrant maybe well-intentioned, but, but certainly in defiance of some of the clear guidance of the laws, it, in my judgment, makes some sense. Now, providing sort of critical. Criminal sanctions does sort of discourage that behavior. On the flip side, if you provide open-ended criminal sanctions, again, I think as Rick pointed out that that that's a real problem. It does in, uh, incentivize some some potential oversight from partisan officials um, to try to penalize the the most mundane, run-of-the-mill mistakes that an election official makes. Uh, so. I think the key is trying to find, on the one hand, some balance of incentivizing local officials to conform to statewide rules, uh, while, on the other hand, not overly politicizing the process to give those statewide officials a heavy hand of politicizing the process. And I agree that in 2020, uh, statewide officials, election officials, almost uniformly, with a a brief exception in Michigan, uh, at the local level, uh, were essentially uniform, unanimous in certifying the results of the election. And I think that was a really encouraging result to trust the process as it existed. Uh, And the hope is, I think, that whatever kinds of oversight happen in places like Georgia going forward, um, we're still going to see those kinds of uh, sort of oversight by statewide officials that kind of respect for the process. At least that's the hope. Um, But there's certainly the concerns that Rick raised.
0: Uh, Rick, in your piece, you identified not only laws, but also steps like the Arizona State Senate, which has demanded the seizure of uh, November ballots and ordered an audit to be conducted uh, uh, in a a way that you think is unreliable. Uh, What are your concerns about the future of these election subversion efforts? And tell us more about what you think can be done to prevent them. You said that the counting of paper ballots would help, and that's already contained in H.R. 1, the bill pending before Congress, but you also identify other election reforms that are not part of H.R. 1, including uh, the uh, requirement that states impose basic safeguards in the counting of votes in federal elections.
2: Yeah, so uh, the risk of election subversion is a lot harder to uh, plan against than, uh, th- than uh, voter suppression laws. You know, so... Uh, Another part of HR one, this mammoth bill that um, passed uh, through the House and is now stalled in, in the United States Senate, would uh, uh, require states to offer a period of early voting, whether it's uh, by mail or in person. I mean, so you can you, there are things you can imagine doing to uh, to deal with uh, efforts to make it harder to register and vote, but ensuring that you have fair counting processes, well, that's tough, right? So one thing, having paper ballots, as I mentioned, that seems like a no brainer. And even if H.R. 1 is not going to pass, it seems that Congress should be able to come together and pass a narrow bill that says that uh, in the places where they use fully electronic voting machines, those should not be allowed. Because, I mean, just imagine what Georgia would have been like if Georgia was still using DRE machines, fully electronic machines that didn't produce a piece of paper. You know, uh, Trump would have claimed that the machines had some malicious software code in it, and there would be no way to, um, uh, you know, uh, Verify that he was wrong, but here uh, in Georgia they had a recount, they had a hand recount, so every single ballot was looked at by hand, right? So, so that's that's um, uh, one thing. You mentioned this this um, recount uh, or audit, I don't even know what you want to call it. This crazy thing going on in Arizona now. In Arizona, there were challenges to election results. Uh, there uh, there was a court process. There were no serious irregularities found in Arizona. And now we have this other process going on, which is actually interfering with ballots. And a letter was sent by um, Pamela Carlin, who's a, a, an election law professor, is now working for the Department of Justice, uh, suggesting that uh, messing with these ballots might, it might be um, interfering with existing federal law that says that states have to preserve ballots in federal elections for 22 months. And so uh, you know, some of this is about existing law, but I think so much of this is not about laws, but about norms. Um, uh, one of the things I say in that piece is that if someone's running for office and they're parroting the big lie that the election was stolen, those people should be condemned. So, you know, I don't really have a a, a dog in the fight of who should win in uh, for the Georgia Secretary of State's race. Uh, I don't endorse candidates uh, and I um, I'm not a Georgia resident, but I do think that it should be a... Uh, as a floor, uh, it should be every serious candidate should reject the idea that the election was stolen in Georgia. And yet you have candidates who are not willing to say that. So I think a lot of this is about enforcing norms. You think about some of the problems that we have and that we went through over the last four years, it's because uh, Donald Trump undermined voter confidence in all of the kinds of guardrails that protect our democracy. again, talking about norms, not laws faith in the FBI and law enforcement, faith in the two-party system, faith in an independent judiciary, faith in the press. I mean, these are all of the kinds of aspects of civil society and aspects of our government and our, uh, and our political system that ensure that people are following the rule of law. And so rather than pass any single piece of legislation, aside from things like uh, you know, dealing with paper ballots, I think much of this is about bolstering the rule of law. And that's a really hard project, but it seems to me that's the most important thing we need to do as we look to 2022, 2024 and beyond.
0: Thank you for noting those guardrails of democracy. The NCC has a guardrails of democracy initiative where we're trying to identify ways of resurrecting them. And as you note, faith in in independent judiciary, law enforcement and the press is an important guardrail. Uh, Derek, you wrote a piece called uh, "The Diamonds Hidden in HR One's Massive Mine," which uh, I think you agree with, uh, Rick. That some provisions about paper balloting might help increase security and reliability around the balloting process. Tell us about those aspects of HR One and why you think they're a good idea.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think you know HR One runs at 886 pages, so <laughs> it's hard to put any one sort of critique in as, as a good or bad thing. But I think there, there is a number of valid and uh, valuable things, as Rick pointed out, about the paper ballots. And This is, I think, one of the most frustrating things coming out of the 2020 election. Um, critiques about Dominion voting systems and the like, that these uh, electronic voting system providers were uh, somehow subverting the election. You know, in virtually all these places, the, the electronic voting systems are scanning paper ballots so there's a paper trail out there Looks right there are some places where there aren't and one of the things that hr1 would do is say you need, you need to have a paper trail somewhere for these things but undoubtedly when we do recounts we did a the statewide audit in georgia it was paper ballots that were being looked at and verifying that whatever was being run through the machines was accurate and so um You know, codifying that as a standard for elections is, I think, a good thing. We made some progress after the 2000 fiasco of punch card ballots and hanging chads. Um, You know, we're not quite all the way there yet about uh, modernizing our election systems. But another this gets to the the Arizona point indirectly is to think about risk limiting audits. Um, which which have been growing in popularity at the the state level. You know, on the one hand, there's sort of a wonky statistical thing that that, that's sometimes hard to get legislatures excited about. But um, H.R. 1 sort of incentivizes states to say you need to develop, again, these sort of ex-ante rules. You need to before the election say, here's how we're going to sort of check to make sure the results are what we think they were. Um, and you know there are problems that arise from the election night totals. This happens in every election. Um, where there's some corrupted information on a thumb drive uh, you know, that was submitting the information to uh, the, the, the statewide reporting that happened in Michigan happened in Iowa elsewhere. Uh, you could have situations where somebody fails to upload the information or or there's some some t- s- some ballots that were set aside that were not counted the first time that should have been right? So the canvas is a process to figure that out between those unofficial totals and the sort of more official totals. But then auditing and going back in a methodical, systematic way to verify that whatever happened at the precinct... You, you have the number of ballots cast as the number of people who checked in that you can account for all of the ballots that were given to each precinct or each local location right and to develop those kinds of rules to instill that confidence and one of the most frustrating things about arizona's legislative audit is you know it's sort of freewheeling it's not entirely clear what those standards are what they're looking for how they're sort of going to examine it or identify good or bad outcomes and so Providing those upfront rules, I think, is a crucial and critical safeguard. And again, I think one of the reasons why election officials across the United States were so readily uh, interested in certifying the ultimate outcome of the 2020 election, because we have some of those procedural safeguards in place. Uh, again, I think there are ways of improving that. And, and again, at least a sliver of HR1 is designed to help improve those
0: kinds of things. Uh, Rick, you wrote another recent piece called H.R. 1 Can't Pass the Senate, but Here Are Some Voting Reforms That Could. You argue that some parts of H.R. 1 are a progressive wish list that couldn't survive a, a, a filibuster, um, and you say other parts of it could be found unconstitutional, including a provision requiring states to re enfranchise all people convicted of felons not currently serving time in a correctional institution. But then you identify four reforms that uh, could. In fact, pass and might attract moderate Republican support. Tell us what those are.
2: Well, I should say that piece is, I think, now maybe a couple of months old. And um, uh, what we really care about is what does Joe Manchin care about? So let me just explain the politics of this a, a little bit. Um, so HR one, as Derek mentioned, uh, was a huge bill, and it, it became even larger, I think, on the Senate side. Uh, it um, Was not voted out of committee. It was a party line vote, and that's how these things uh, this uh, has proceeded. Democrats have fifty votes in the in the Senate plus um, Vice President Harris as a tiebreaker, so they have a majority. But in order for most legislation to get out of the Senate and to get to President Biden's desk, it needs to overcome a filibuster, which requires sixty votes. Uh, that's not true for certain economic legislation that can go through a process called reconciliation. Uh, but people aren't talking about that for a, a voting rights bill. And so uh, how are you going to get this bill out? Well, uh, over the last few years, both Republican and Democratic uh, senators have changed the rules for filibusters. So Democrats, for example, uh, got rid of the filibuster as it applied to nominations by the president for everything but the Supreme Court. Uh, that's when Harry Reid was a Senate majority leader. And then when Mitch McConnell came in, they got rid of the filibuster for, um, uh, Supreme Court nominees. Uh, that's how uh, Justice Gorsuch and other justices got through. Well, now there's a, a, there's a, an argument, and, and I made one in Slate back in 2018, that Democrats should get rid of the filibuster for voting rights reforms because, uh, as the Supreme Court has said, uh, voting rights are preserved of all other rights. So if you don't have the right to vote, how are you going to protect uh, any other rights? And so um, could we get anything through that would... Um, Uh, require blowing up the filibuster. It doesn't seem very likely right now because uh, Joe Manchin, who's a Democratic senator from West Virginia, has not only not endorsed H.R. 1, but he's also said he won't blow up the filibuster. And what he has proposed instead, and so I'd rather talk about what he wants rather than what I want, since his position seems to be a little more important than what I wrote in an op-ed in the Washington Post a couple of months ago, he wants preclearance restored and uh, extended to all 50 states. And let me explain what that is. So, until 2013, from the late 1960s till 2013, anytime a state with a history of race discrimination passed a law that affected voting, the state had to get approval from the federal government, either from a, uh, the Department of Justice or a three-judge court in Washington, D.C., and showed that the law would not make protected minority voters worse off. This, this is this provision called Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. In 2013, the Supreme Court, in a case called Shelby County versus Holder, said that um, the coverage formula that was used to determine which states need to go through this preclearance process, was too old, and that relying on this old data infringed on what the court majority called the equal sovereignty of states. That's a very controversial decision, and that's a topic for a different podcast. Uh, But the upshot is that the Supreme Court didn't say that Section 5 was Unconstitutional. It said that Section 4, which defined which states were covered by this preclearance provision, was unconstitutional. And Congress could go back and try and come up with a new preclearance formula. Well, what Joe Manchin is proposing is that we adopt H.R. 4, which is the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Um, which would restore preclearance, although that provision has a new coverage formula, which Democrats believe would be found constitutional by the Supreme Court. But Manchin's suggesting, no, let's apply it nationwide. That would solve the equal sovereignty problem because you wouldn't be treating Alabama worse than uh, you'd be treating New Jersey. But it does still create some constitutional questions. Not clear what the Supreme Court would do with something like that. But I do think we could take out, if we took out and restored preclearance in some form, and we had limits on partisan gerrymandering. The Supreme Court in a case a few years ago called Rucho said that federal courts are not going to police partisan gerrymandering, the drawing of district lines to help one party or another. But Congress has the power to. Um, in the Constitution to set the rules for congressional elections. It's an Article 1, Section 4. And Congress could potentially require the use of redistricting commissions to draw district lines. I think making those changes, and also I would add into that primary reform that would make it easier for Republican moderates to get elected, which is important to kind of fight back the uh, Trumpian wing of the party that uh, is showing some authoritarian tendencies, I think putting those three things in a bill and getting Joe Manchin to agree to it and blow up the filibuster to get those vo- voting changes made, that would be tremendous progress towards uh, helping to protect voting rights in this country.
0: Thank you very much for that. Thank you also for explaining to We The People listeners so well uh, what preclearance is and how the Shelby County case affected it. Uh, Derek, I'll begin by asking, do you believe that a proposal to extend preclearance requirements to all 50 states could attract any Republican support? Do you think that conservative uh, listeners should support it? And then after talking about that preclearance proposal, uh, maybe tell us uh, what you think about Rick's other two proposals for partisan gerrymandering reform and primary reform, and, and whether you think they could or should attract any Republican support.
1: Rick is so succinct and able to, to pack so much information in a small bite. I'll see if I do my best to get through. Um, in terms of the nationwide preclearance, it's worth noting, so the, the, the last version of the Voting Rights uh, Advancement Act, or the, now the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights Act, um, did have a provision for nationwide preclearance. Um, in, in a way, sort of in the past, preclearance was sort of an acceptable thing in the sense that it was sort of targeting a handful of jurisdictions. And when we were renewing it, we weren't really changing the jurisdictions that were going to be covered. But now that we're sort of writing from a blank slate, I do think it's going to be a little bit politically challenging, especially for those who come from jurisdictions that are going to be subject to preclearance again, um, to sort of swallow that and say this is an acceptable outcome. So there's that sort of political component in terms of the nationwide preclearance. You know, it, it does sort of, uh, Press what what's been described by the Supreme Court in Shelby County and as far back in in, in the sixties when it was approving the, the, the original Voting Rights Act in cases like Katzenbeck, an extraordinary measure, right? For the for the federal government to say your election law cannot go into effect until the Attorney General or a federal court approves it. It's sort of an extraordinary measure. It's not the kind of thing that was anticipated in the Constitution. James Madison famously wanted a kind of opportunity for for the federal government to veto state legislation that was never adopted. Um, So the question is, you know, when it comes to that kind of remedy, what kind of record can Congress develop and say that this is an appropriate tailoring of the extraordinary remedy of preclearance to certain activities. So to pick it on a nationwide basis, as Rick points out, yeah, you're not treating states differently. But it's still an extraordinary sort of cause of action to say you can't do X without the approval of the federal government. And so when you look at at least the the last version of the Voting Rights Act, it hasn't been introduced yet in this Congress, which is another uh, interesting so strategic political decision, in my judgment. Um, it, it says things if you've if you've changed election processes, like um, adding seats to an at-large political subdivision or changing jurisdiction boundaries. Those kinds of things would require nationwide preclearance. and they're tethered to saying if there's language minorities or if there's racial minorities in the state. And so, in a way, you could say this is a practice that Congress could identify at the nationwide level to say. Listen, before you go changing how representation looks locally, you need to seek approval because it could dilute the rights of minority voters. And that might be something squarely within the power of the federal government to sort of authorize and require. Something, though, that is assuredly not going to gain a lot of conservative support was one provision that said any changes to voter identification laws or requirements about proof of identity to register to vote would also need to seek nationwide preclearance, essentially freezing such laws in place and requiring you to go to a federal court or the attorney general to seek approval. So I think when you include some provisions like that, um, things that are already hotly contested partisan issues at the state level, and ratcheted up to the federal government's level to say you can't enact any of these statutes without the approval of the attorney general or a court, I think becomes a, a much more challenging measure for uh, for Republicans in Congress to support. Um, so it might be that Senator Manchin, you know, he is the swing vote. He might be the one who decides that such things are okay. But I think it's also thinking about what nationwide preclearance looks like. It might be that some Republicans are okay with some of these provisions to say when it comes to adding seats to local elections or redrawing jurisdictional boundaries, those kinds of things might be able to seek pre-clearance. For some of these other provisions, it might be a little bit uh, tougher
0: uh, of a sell. Many thanks for that. Well, in the final portion of this great discussion, let us talk about the constitutional dimensions of the voting rights bills uh, that are pending in the states. Uh, This is a complicated question, Rick, uh, but you're just the person to help us understand it. Are there any aspects of the Georgia, Texas, Iowa, or other state bills that raise constitutional questions under sections uh, under under the 14th or 15th Amendments and or under uh, section five or section two of the Voting Rights Act?
2: So uh, you're right. It's a very complicated question. Um, So let me just give a just a very uh, brief overview. Um, So when a. When when a state law is challenged as, say, uh, an effort to make it harder for people to register uh, and to vote, uh, such a law might be challenged either under the Constitution, uh, uh, arguing that it's a violation of equal protection uh, uh, or due process, uh, or under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which protects minority voters and assures that they have the same opportunity as other voters to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. Section 5 right now is a dead letter until unless until the Supreme Court revives it. Um, on the question of whether or not these laws violate equal protection, um, sometimes the court uses um, uh, measures like uh, strict scrutiny, which makes it very hard for such laws to be sustained, uh, laws that directly infringe on uh, whether someone can cast a ballot. Th- those laws are... Um, uh, judged under, under strict scrutiny because the right to vote is fundamental. But most of these laws are judged under a, a very amorphous balancing test, which is known in the election law field as the Anderson-Burdick balancing test, which is uh, named after two earlier Supreme Court cases, um, Anderson versus Celebrisi and Burdick versus Takushi. Uh, in recent years, that balancing test has not been proven to be very successful for uh, plaintiffs in challenging a lot of these laws. As to whether these laws can be challenged as a violation of Section 2 in those states that have large uh, portions of minority voters, uh, I can't answer that question until probably early July because the Supreme Court is considering a case called Brnovich. Uh, Bernovich is the name of the attorney general in um Uh, Arizona, And it's a case that raises for the first time uh, what Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act means in the context not of redistricting, where we have lots of cases and we know uh, what the Supreme Court thinks it means, but in the context of so-called vote denial, laws that make it harder to register and vote. Uh, In the Brnovich case, uh, two Arizona uh, uh, um, rules were challenged as violating Section 2. It doesn't sound like um, the plaintiffs are going to be successful in that case, Um, in in showing a violation of Section 2, but the real action is going to be uh, what the court is going to do in terms of fashioning a test for knowing when Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act is violated. And let let me, um, so I can uh, be embarrassed in the future, let me give a prediction about something that might happen in that case. I think that... um, uh, as I said, I think that the uh, the plaintiffs are not likely to win based on the oral argument that I listened to, but it is possible to imagine the court dividing, say, uh, into three groups as it did in a two thousand eight case called Crawford versus Marion County Election Board, uh, which involved a. a, a a constitutional challenge to Indiana's voter ID law, where there was kind of a a, a block of liberals that uh, that wanted to strike the thing down, and here you'd have a potentially a block of liberals that want to say that that these laws violate Section Two. Although I'm not sure the liberals are going to go along with that uh, in, in the Burnovich case, a block that's kind of a more extreme conservative block that's going to re- read Section Two as as um, not really having any power in this area, and I'm thinking here of justices. Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch, potentially, and then a middle block, which would be uh, Kavanaugh, Chief Justice Roberts, and Barrett. Uh, You can imagine them taking a middle position and um, reading, saying that Arizona's law didn't violate Section 2, but not reading it as a totally toothless provision. And it's possible that three liberals go along with that interpretation. And so you could end up having uh, a unanimous ruling against The plaintiffs in the Arizona case, but yet uh, putting together kind of the liberal block and the moderate right block, if we want to call it that, on the court, uh, giving some teeth to uh, allow plaintiffs to challenge the most restrictive laws. I think at least uh, Chief Justice Roberts uh, recognizes the political difficulties right now in terms of voting and the polarization in this country. And uh, another court decision that would. Uh, read the Voting Rights Act as, as mostly a dead letter would be very politically controversial and would also potentially not protect um, voters in, in an adequate way as Congress intended. So I'm at least hopeful that we're going to end up with um, the potential for this kind of middle reading of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act and that that will help go after the most egregious of these voter suppression laws that are being passed in some of the states.
0: Thank you for that wonderfully succinct uh, introduction to this extremely complicated topic. Uh, Derek, you also have written about the Brnovich case. We've discussed it on the We the People podcast. And I'm eager for your thoughts about what uh, this position, which uh, Rick has described as a middle position, uh, that would allow the most extreme voting rights laws to violate Section 2 would look like. As as you note, Section 2 uh, says that state laws... uh, should be evaluated under the totality of circumstances and be struck down when voting procedures are not equally open to participation of racial minorities in that its members have less opportunities than other members of the electorate to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. What test could you imagine the center of the court converging around uh, and what laws would that call into question?
1: Yeah, it's a great question because I think it's so complicated to think about the kinds of tests the court can add on to this fairly open-ended language in Section Two of the Voting Rights Act. Right? How do we assess totality of the circumstances? How do we, uh, you know, determine whether it's equally open to you know participation? What what those things look like? Undoubtedly, I think the center of the court was gravitating toward thinking about these laws holistically. And relatedly, I think this has been a controversial proposition in the lower courts, as Rick's pointed out, thinking about Anderson-Burdick balancing tests for many of these statutes that have often been challenged in the lower courts, and they sometimes have found success at the district court level only to be overturned by the, the, the Court of Appeals, or especially during the pandemic by the Supreme Court uh, on sort of short fuse litigation where, where it says these laws need to remain in place. You know, take... A, take Uh, One example from Georgia, right, one one I already mentioned about requiring you to submit an absentee ballot um, 11 days before the election uh, instead of four days is when you need to put in your your application request. How do we assess that in terms of the burden it places on voters, right? Undoubtedly, there's some group of voters who might have wanted to get an absentee ballot between days four and 11 before the election and are unable to do so and who are unable to sort of go to the polling place and vote. And so do we sort of focus on that group, however narrow it is? Uh, Sometimes the court in Crawford has suggested as such, if, if that group is disproportionately racial minorities, do we think about that group as the group being most sort of disproportionately affected? Or do we look at the fact this is a law that sort of treats everyone equally, it's on a statewide basis, everyone has the same opportunities, everyone has the same opportunity to participate in the political process? And we also look at it in in the totality of the circumstances. You have had ample opportunities up until 11 days before the election to request an absentee ballot. And you can go to the polling place and vote in person. And when you look at it from that lens, you know, most voters are not going to be affected and you still have ample alternative avenues to seek out the opportunity to vote. And so I think that's what makes these laws in particular tricky to evaluate. On the one hand, you might look at them as it does it make it harder to vote maybe it does and we look at it in some of these sort of narrow discrete categories but placing it in a totality of the circumstances test as the court might do under section two or placing it under sort of this balancing test about how we're supposed to assess it as voters under Anderson Burdick I think has made a lot of these sort of tweaks to election laws much harder for litigants to challenge um you know unlike some of these other other statutes that we you know even voter identification laws prohibit you from voting if you don't have the ID subject to some limited exceptions. These are much trickier. They they, they make it a little bit more challenging and channel voters into different different avenues to, to, to be able to participate. But I think the court has had less appetite in saying for the federal courts to be the place to make the adjudications for these more sort of intermediate measures. And I think Bernev- I think Rick is right that Brnovich will come down in a way to say that there are uh, you know, some outliers, some extreme situations where litigants are going to win these challenges, um, but under the totality of the circumstances, many times the, the plaintiffs will lose.
0: Thanks so much for that. Uh, one more round before closing arguments. Rick, if you were uh, advising the Supreme Court about how to interpret Section 2, what test would you propose for the adjudication of vote denial? claims rather than vote dilution claims, and how would it apply, and what sort of provisions of the laws we've been discussing would it call into question?
2: Well, I should say, first of all, what I would do is rework the burden, uh, the Anderson-Burdick burden uh, balancing test, uh, because I think that the court went uh, in the wrong direction. Uh, and I've I've written about this for many years. I think that uh, essentially what happens in these balancing uh, tests is that the court is a bear on evidence it requires tremendous evidence of burdens on voters and and yet when it comes to state interests like promoting voter confidence or preventing fraud the court requires no evidence we saw that in uh the uh crawford case that i mentioned earlier the 2008 case upholding indiana's voter id law it was uh justice stevens um who wrote the controlling opinion there and you know he drops a footnote talking about voter fraud and he had a site Uh, boss tweed you know back from uh the mid uh 19th century uh to find evidence of fraud or one possibly one fraudulent ballot cast in a governor's race uh in washington state in the early 2000s i think rather than doing this as uh an issue of voting uh, voting rights act and race i would much rather that voters across the country whether they can show racial discrimination or not uh, get more protection Again, the question should be, does the state have a legitimate reason to make it harder for people to register and vote? And I know that Derek has talked about this as creating a kind of one-way ratchet where when states increase um, uh, access to the ballot, they have a hard time rolling it back. But I'm actually fine with that. I think they should have a hard time rolling it back. I think that um, voting rights should always be uh, getting stronger uh, so long as we do have uh, adequate protections against actual fraud or or um, um, problems with how elections are run. On the section two question itself, I think the lower courts pretty much had it right. Um, you have to show that uh, a, a law burdens minority voters uh, greater than it burdens others. And that the state's um, uh, justification for making it harder for protected minority voters to vote is not, uh, to use the technical language here from from Voting Rights Act cases, tenuous. So tenuousness requirement. And let me just give you an example of what this looks like. Texas passed one of the strictest voter ID laws in the country. It was blocked under Section 5, when Section 5 was still preclearance, when Section 5 was still there. As soon as the Supreme Court decided Shelby County, Texas announced, I think within two hours, it was going to enforce its very strict voter ID law, a law that had only a very small number of acceptable forms of ID, which did not include student IDs, although it did include people who had uh, gun permits. Uh, the, that kind of ID was okay. That law was challenged as a violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And the, the Fifth Circuit, which is probably the most conservative circuit uh, court in the United States, held that the law, unbunked so the entire uh, Fifth Circuit, held the law was, was a violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Texas then went back, and it made its law a little bit... Um, less strict. It said, for example, that voters who had a reasonable impediment to getting the kind of IDs that are allowed under the law, those voters could fill out an affidavit as to who they are uh, and that this could serve as an alternative to an ID. The law was still challenged. And when it went back to the Fifth Circuit, the Fifth Circuit says, no, that's fine. And I think that's the way things should work. I'm not saying that those two particular decisions were necessarily right, but the idea is that you have a test that is meaningful, that has teeth, that says that laws that are really restrictive should be found to be violating the Voting Rights Act, and laws that are, are, are reasonable ways of running an election, those are okay. And that's what I would like to see. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't know where the, exactly the court's going to draw that line. If there's going to be a majority opinion, I suspect we may not find out until the very end of the Supreme Court's term. But uh, it is one of the most important cases that the court is going to decide this term because it's going to uh, have effects uh, for 2022 and 2024 and beyond.
0: Uh, Derek, what are your thoughts about how the court should fashion a test for Section 2 in the Brnovich case? Rick endorsed the lower court test that uh, the question is whether laws burden minority voters more than they burden others and whether the state's justification for burdening minority voters is Tenuous. Uh, do you think that's the right test, or would you uh, advocate uh, for another test? And and what do you think of the proposal to refine the Anderson Burdick test by asking whether states have a legitimate reason for making it harder for people to register and vote? Yeah,
1: so I think you know I, I support probably a little bit more of a stringent test. Um, you know, Arizona, for instance, has had a law in the books that you know, prohibits out of precinct voting. Um, as far as I know, since it was a territory, um, so it's it's a long standing rule in the books. Um, and the Ninth Circuit, looking at it, saying, "You know what? We think this law disproportionately burdens uh, racial minority voters, and we can't figure out the state's justification. We're going to strike it down." I mean, to to me, is 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 just a little bit too easy f- to uh, for courts to just kind of step in and substitute their judgment. And it's true, as Rick said, that that a lot of the times the the legislature, uh, you know, does not have to come forward with great reasons in front of the court, and it's done so in the past. Um, But, you know, in terms of sort of providing opportunities, thinking about the opportunities for voters, you know, that there are equal opportunities to participate in the political process throughout Arizona, um, in particular, if we think about uh, the precinct problem might be a problem in certain counties and in other counties, they use vote centers where you don't have to go to any particular uh, precinct, but you go somewhere within the county to go be able to vote. Um, and so thinking about you know the fact that there are many alternative avenues and the fact that it might have a a, a burdensome impact on, some population in the state in my judgment is just not enough and i think that there was a position advanced by the solicitor general's office until that was uh, withdrawn (laughs) once the biden administration took over suggest some kind of proximate causation that you're able to show that it was this law that was causing the effect and not just that it had some sort of burden i think that that would provide a little bit more flexibility to the states to be able to preserve including you know long-standing laws in the books um, but also to to say that those statutes, you know, are, are for the most part going to going be be upheld. But but you know, even when we think about these things, you know, one of the frustrating things we opened this uh, conversation thinking about statutes, right? And we're so quickly into the courts. And and, and in some ways, Congress can obviate all this. Not just an HR one, if it wanted to slim it down or find something. Congress can provide a lot of uniform guidance to the states to to prohibit certain kinds of practices or provide some kinds of floors. And so if H.R. 1 is enacted, you know, there's things within it I agree or disagree. There are things that might be constitutional or not. Um, But it would sort of obviate a lot of the litigation that's been happening at the lower court level um, to be thinking about these problems on sort of a piecemeal ad hoc basis. Um, So, you know, I, I, I do wish that the legislature would flex its muscle a little bit more, maybe in some slimmed down versions rather than 886-page versions, but to address those problems that it thinks the national level really need to be addressed. Now, maybe that's, you know, pie-in-the-sky talk when we're talking about our partisanship, but I think the, the, the real reason we lean so heavily on the federal courts to do so is because of the lack of federal guidance that would, again, sort of cure many of these problems.
0: Well, it's time for closing arguments in this really rich and illuminating discussion, Uh, Rick, the first one is to you. Uh, Republicans claim that these pending voter laws discourage voter fraud and promote voter confidence. Democrats say that they are tools of uh, vote suppression or election subversion. Um, Is is this essentially a a partisan debate uh, uh, dressed up uh, with uh, broader principles, or is there any common ground in this debate about the legality and constitutionality of voting rights bills in the states? Well, I think Derek and I can find common ground. And if you would make us election czars, I think we could
2: run the uh, elections fairly nicely. But, uh, you know, we, we just get to be uh, armchair quarterbacks here. And so uh, what I'd say is that, you know, the debate over, I, I, th- I wrote this in my uh, uh, 2020 book, uh, Election Meltdown, the debate over uh, voter fraud and uh um, uh, voter suppression. I, I think the debate is actually over as a matter of actuality. Uh, the amount of fraud in this country uh, is is quite low. Uh, certainly, we need provisions to keep it that way, and we need uh, aggressive prosecutors when there are serious violations. Uh, and yeah, you know, we we see kind of um, lots of prosecutorial discretion. Things that look serious don't get prosecuted. Uh, things that seem very minor do get prosecuted. So uh, you know, I think. Um, It is unfortunate that this is a partisan debate. Uh, I don't want to look at this as a Democratic versus Republican issue. I side with the voters. And I ask, you know, what can we do to assure that we have fair elections, that people will accept as legitimate, where uh, all eligible voters, but only eligible voters, can easily cast a vote vote that will be fairly and accurately counted? And I think um, that's got to be the baseline. And there are lots of things I would favor to move in that direction, like, moving towards national nonpartisan election administration. Those are things that are not going to happen anytime uh, soon uh, in the United States, even though every other advanced democracy uh, has a model like that. Uh, So we have to ask what we can do within the reality of the American system. I would like to see more bipartisan cooperation on election issues. Uh, I think that it's going to require us to get through this Trumpian moment uh, where Uh, election confidence is being undermined by lies about the 2020 election being stolen. So it's a particularly difficult time for us to get consensus. Uh, But I hope that maybe a decade from now we will be past this moment, and there will be again an opportunity for people across the political spectrum to come together and to pass voting rules that make sense, that assure that eligible voters can cast a ballot, and that Really, what the parties and others are doing are competing for voters' votes, not trying to shape who the electorate is. Uh,
0: Derek, the last word is to you. Uh, Do you believe that there are grounds for bipartisan cooperation on election issues uh, so that people from across the political spectrum can uh, cast eligible votes? And uh, what might those reforms look like?
1: Yeah, so I think... I, I agree much before what Rick said, and again, I have the optimism of the future. Uh, for many of these statutes, you know, I'm not sure they do a lot of good. I'm not sure they do a lot of harm. You know, I think some of them are a little more inexplicable as we open the conversation about banning people from handing out water bottles to Georgia voters waiting in line. Um, but, but, but for most of these things, I think they're tweaking at the margins. And again, I, I think... One of the more concerning things is that they are being used as sort of explanations to say, well, we are responding to the problems from 2020. Um, and there just weren't a lot of problems in 2020. And I think this is a, a long-standing issue for and it's beginning worse than the last 20 years in particular of losing candidates um, or losing parties, maybe or losing partisans. Um, who feel like this system was rigged and stacked against them and that they feel disaffected by the process um, until they win again, or that there must be some defect in the system. I um, think it's very frustrating and unfortunate. Um, and I don't know what the, what the way forward is. Um, you know, it's obviously to tell the truth, to instill that confidence in the public. Um, it's very hard when a former president is sort of insisting that, that the game was rigged. And we've seen this you know, in, in other situations in Florida in 2000 or in the Georgia gubernatorial election in 2018, but never at this scale and level. <laughs> and, and, and there's a worry, I think, it is only going to get worse. So I think we do need to be thinking about, again, smartly about those kinds of reforms, paper ballots, audit, uh, audit auditing the votes in the appropriate risk-limiting auditing way, not in a in an ad hoc legislative forensic audit um, thinking about those kinds of things that really can ensure broad consensus on a bipartisan basis to instill that confidence. Um, But at the end of the day, if the voters are unwilling to accept that result, um, egged on by losing candidates. You know, I think we're, we're in a very dark place. So, so I like to be thinking about those kinds of things that can bring us together on a bipartisan basis and hopefully move the ball forward in, in, in improving the, the the confidence in our elections.
0: Thank you so much, Rick Hassan and Derek Muller, for ending us on a note of light rather than darkness and for a nonpartisan discussion of the most partisan of all uh constitutional and political issues. Uh, Rick, Derek, thank you so much for teaching us, and thank you for joining.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Mac Taylor and Lana Ulrich. Uh, Homework of the week, We the People listeners, if you haven't yet, please check out our companion podcast live at NCC. It's just a wonderful audio feed of all of the incredible town hall programs that we're running every week. And the recent topics have been so exciting, from American literature and the Constitution to... Uh, questions involving, uh, do we need a third reconstruction? They're so rich, and I think you'll love them. If you like We The People, you will love live at NCC, so please check them out, and if you do, let me know what you think. And at the same time, please rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple Podcasts, and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone, anywhere who is hungry for a weekly dose of constitutional education and debate. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit, and please consider supporting the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or giving a donation of any amount to support our work at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. Those dollar and five dollar contributions that you're making are so meaningful, and they're a wonderful show of support for an educational mission that we all care deeply about. So thank you, and on behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.